Good morning, everyone. I'm John. You might recognize me from such moments as that video. But here I am, live and in person, happy to be with you. Pastor Tom is live and in person preaching at the Thornton campus this morning. So if you have a Bible, if you haven't already, I hope you'll open it with me to the verses that were read for us earlier, Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. As we continue our Sunday series called Wonder, our hope is that as we look at a few selections from the Old Testament book of Isaiah, that our perspective about Christmas might be shifted. We might look at the Christmas story with a new set of eyes and wonder at the birth of Jesus. We live in the most comfortable time in history, and yet happiness is at an all-time low. That's the thesis of an article written by Albert Brooks in the magazine The Atlantic in October of 2020. It's a paradox. We live in a world filled with all sorts of creature comforts, and yet we're unhappy. I think about my own life. I wake up every morning in a climate-controlled home, set to the exact temperature that I prefer. I have a room in my home that's set aside for my clothing. We call it a closet. And my walk-in closet is relatively small by standards of walk-in closets. But nonetheless, I have a room in my house where my clothing lives. Brooks points out that the average size of the American home grew by more than 1,000 square feet from the early 1970s until now. And that living space per person, on average, has doubled over that time. We live in one of the most comfortable times in history, and yet happiness is at an all-time low. Now, while there absolutely has been a rise in income inequality in our country, spending across income levels doesn't mirror that. For example, the lowest income levels have increased their discretionary spending on things like eating out at a rate that outpaces the wealthiest Americans. We live in the most comfortable time in history, and yet happiness is at an all-time low. Brooks says, amid these advances in quality of life across the income scale, average happiness is decreasing in the United States. The General Social Survey, which has been measuring social trends among Americans every one or two years since 1972, shows a long-term, gradual decline in happiness and rise in unhappiness from 1988 to the present. We live in the most comfortable time in history, and yet happiness is at an all-time low. Why? What really comforts us? What brings us true, soul-satisfying comfort? It doesn't seem like material things provide true comfort. Perhaps, perhaps there's something more. Something more that every human needs 
to truly find comfort. Our text today, Isaiah 40, is from a far less comfortable time in history than today. The ancient world. Isaiah wrote about 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And for God's people at that time, there was nothing comfortable about their lives. They were living under God's judgment for their rebellion, for their lack of faithfulness to him. And part of God's judgment for his people at that time meant that they were living under and being attacked by the Assyrian Empire. And the prophet Isaiah was sent by God to declare to God's people that they are under God's judgment. That's the main theme of the first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah. Judgment. And in the midst of all that, right before the verses that we read today, at the end of chapter 39 in Isaiah, Isaiah makes another terrible prediction about what will happen to God's people more than 100 years later. A different empire will rise, he says. The Babylonians. And they will conquer Jerusalem, ransack the city, and destroy the temple. And so it's kind of surprising when we come to the first verse of Isaiah chapter 40 and read these words. Comfort. Comfort my people says your God. How on earth could God's people be comforted when they are smack in the middle of judgment, destruction, and exile? My prayer is that we look at a few verses from Isaiah chapter 40 together that we might all experience God's comfort this Christmas regardless of our circumstances. Not comfort that's found in the conveniences of our modern life, but a supernatural kind of comfort that only God can give us. Let's look at verse 2. Isaiah says, Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. Now, one of the challenges as we come to a book like Isaiah or another book in the Bible that has a lot of predictions or prophecy in it is understanding the context and who do those words apply to. Now, let's think about a couple different audiences that the words of Isaiah might have application for. There, of course, is the audience in 700 BC when Isaiah is writing to the people of God at that time. Hezekiah is the king of Judah, and he is speaking to them directly. Now, it just so happens that about that time, the Assyrians tried to invade Jerusalem. And Hezekiah stood up to the leader of that army of the Assyrian Empire and pledges his faith in God. And God sends the angel of the Lord to protect his people. And the angel of the Lord destroys the Assyrian army. 185,000 men are destroyed by the hand of God. And God saves the city. So, in 700 BC, the people might read these words and say, yeah, our warfare's ended. God protected us. He came to our rescue. But what about that prediction that Isaiah has just made that's going to transpire 100 to 150 years later in 586 BC, when exactly what he says happens comes to pass? Look at 
that the Babylonians invade Jerusalem and they are successful. They destroy it, literally level the temple and carry off God's people into exile. Well, it doesn't seem as though their warfare is ended, right? So there's those audiences. There's also, of course, throughout the book of Isaiah, a first century audience where God is speaking to the people about the promised Messiah who will be born, Jesus. And Isaiah is filled and layered with that kind of language. We'll see it today. And there are even prophecies found in the book of Isaiah about the second coming of Jesus when he returns in power and glory and honor. And then, of course, thankfully for us, there are words to us today, to the church that exists between the coming of Jesus, his return to heaven, and his ultimate return to the earth. That's a lot of different contexts for us to sort through. And it's challenging for us to get the proper perspective. It's sort of like when you're driving on 36 coming into Boulder. When you're far away and you see the mountains, have you ever noticed how flat they look? It appears as though that entire mountain range is all the same distance away from you. And then the closer you get, like when when you come over Davidson Mesa, suddenly you start to see the depth of the different mountains that exist in that range. And of course, once you get into it, you realize that there's far more distance between Bear Peak and the Indian Peaks than it appears when you're all the way out in Westminster. And so that's the kind of viewpoint that we have to have as we come to the book of Isaiah, understanding that there is depth and meaning behind the words that the prophet communicates to us, meaning in its original context, meaning in our context today, meaning for future context. And so we'll see that as we look at these verses. So we read words like, her warfare is ended. And we understand the original context, but then we think about our context. This is the promise of Christmas. But the truth of what Isaiah is saying here is that the one at war with God's people, in some sense, is ultimately God himself. That there is hostility that exists between God and his people because of their rebellion, because of their sin. And Isaiah is promising a day when that hostility will come to an end. And how will it come to an end? Look at Luke 2 with me. Verse 14, a famous Christmas verse. Glory to God in the highest, the angels announce, the night that Jesus is born and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. That warfare, that hostility between God and his people will come to an end because of Jesus. He will bring peace. Warfare is ended. We're reminded of Romans 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus, if you have received him as your savior, you no longer stand as an enemy of God. But while we were enemies of God, Jesus died for us. Back to Isaiah 40, verse 2. Goes on to say, her iniquity is pardoned. 
That's how the hostility can come to an end, that our iniquity, that's another word for sin, can be pardoned. Another word for pardon is forgiven. That hostility between God and man will come to an end because God will forgive our sins. And how does he do that? Through Jesus. One of the more famous verses about Jesus from Isaiah that we often read at the Good Friday service is Isaiah 53, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. That's, that's the story in the language of God's people rebelling and our own individual stories of sin. And then we read, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord has laid on Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our sin. And we have been pardoned because of the work of God. And then it says, she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. Now, when you read that at first, you might think, oh gosh, that, does that mean we've gotten in trouble twice? We've received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins? What, what double means the, the idea is almost like a, a folding over of something. So there's two sides to it. This word is used elsewhere in, in the book of Job to describe the hidden realities between the work of God. That there are two sides to it. We, we might see one perspective, but God sees another perspective. And that's what Isaiah is communicating here. That she, the people of God, has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. There is a hidden reality behind the work of God as it, re as it relates to our sins, our iniquity, and the hostility that exists between us and God. A double payment, if you will, for the sins of people. And did you notice that, that she has received this from the Lord's hand? This is the gift of God to his people. They've done nothing to deserve it, but God has freely given it to them as a gift, and his people will one day receive it as they receive Jesus Christ. It's the Lord's doing, not ours. He has made a way. His son, who came at Christmas, came to one day die for our sins. So be comforted this Christmas, my friends. God has pardoned us. Now, there's a word in verses 3 through 5 about preparation, about how to get ready to receive this generous gift of God. Here's what it says. A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Prepare the way of the Lord, Isaiah says. He says, get ready. God is coming. And in order to get ready to receive the coming Messiah, Isaiah uses language from the ancient world about how they would get ready to welcome a dignitary. There weren't a lot of paved roads back in the ancient world. And so for a dignitary to, to travel from one place to another, people would have to go in advance to prepare the way 
for his travel or her travel so that, so that they could make their way through rough and rugged terrain, make a highway in the desert, smooth it out so that their travel would be easier. As I was reflecting on these verses this week, I thought of this picture that I've seen so many times. I-70. How many of us have sat for hours hoping to just make it to the Eisenhower Tunnel? It is a wonder of the, marvel, uh, of the modern world that we are able to have a highway that just snakes through these valleys, right? A smooth, I know they might need to replace some potholes, but like relatively smooth travel. And yet most of the time, I just sit there annoyed that I'm sitting in traffic, not marveling at the engineering work and ingenuity that went in to create this highway so that I can easily travel from my home to go skiing. We live in the most comfortable time in history, and yet happiness is at an all-time low. I sit here and think, this is just a waste of my time. I don't marvel at the work that occurred to lift these valleys up to bore a hole through a mountain so that I could go skiing. Someone had to prepare a way for us to be able to travel to the mountains so easily. And that's the idea of these verses. That there is a preparation that must occur before God will come. And the idea that Isaiah is communicating here is meant to be a personal one. Just as there's work that needs to be done to create a highway, we also have to do personal work in our hearts to welcome God. We have to, to use Isaiah's illustrative language, make the rough parts of our life smooth so that God may come. And how does that happen? through repentance. Now, that doesn't mean we have to clean up our life completely. It doesn't mean that we have to be perfect. But there is and must be an acknowledgement in our hearts that God is altogether different than we are. And we have to humble ourselves to receive him and to be ready. And if we don't just look at many of the people who lived at the time of Jesus, were so familiar with the words of God and didn't listen that humility was required in order to receive a Savior. But we are called even today to turn away from our sin and turn toward God through repentance in order to get ready to receive His forgiveness. Of course, this is the message of John the Baptist who came before Jesus to announce his arrival, and to prepare the people to receive the Lord. It's not on the screen, but Mark 1, 1 through 4 quotes this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And John appeared, verse 4 says, baptizing in the wilderness 
and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's why Jesus came. So that our iniquity might be pardoned. So that we might be forgiven of our sins. So what can we do to be ready for Christmas this year? To receive Jesus. Even if we have already repented of our sin and turned to Christ. There is, in repentance, a one-time turn where we decisively turn away from our previous life and turn towards Jesus and say, you are my Lord and Savior and I will follow you. But there is also meant to be a lifetime trend for every follower of Jesus of continually turning back to the Lord. A continual work of repentance in our heart, confessing our sin, turning back to Jesus and saying, I receive you anew. So for some of us, we ought to consider, in what ways, Lord, do I need to prepare my heart this Christmas to turn back to you, to receive you, to remember your work for me? Now, repenting of our sin and turning toward Christ only happens if we understand what the Bible says about sin and its seriousness. And the truth is, in our day, a lot of people live with a false impression of what's real. They don't even think about sin. Don't consider it to be serious. But the Bible's very real about the seriousness of sin. It doesn't pull punches. It frankly tells us we are sinners, each and every one of us, in need of a Savior. And verses 6 through 8 are kind of like the perspective that we need to understand the reality that we all face. A voice cries, excuse me, a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. This is obviously poetic language, but Isaiah is directly communicating to his readers the futility of a life lived without God. The breath of God can blow on any of us at any moment, and our life is over. Jesus says in a parable of a man who had stored up riches, you fool, tonight your soul will be required of you. Are you ready? If we look around this room for a moment, in all of its comfort and splendor, we should realize there are two things in this room that will last forever. The Word of God and each of us. And the question is, will you live forever with God? Or will you spend eternity without him? This is real, direct, 
language from the prophet Isaiah. Maybe you saw the video this week of Coach Prime meeting with the CU football team. Yeah, first of all, can we just acknowledge that his hiring is a Christmas miracle? (laughs) But if you saw that video, which has gone viral, he was very clear and direct about his expectations for the team, about what will happen, that some of them won't be a part of the team going forward. It was blunt. It was clear. It was direct. The reality is setting expectations is important. It doesn't help to beat around the bush, but we have to be real about what's coming. And that's what Isaiah is doing here. Saying that each and every one of us will die and face the Lord one day. That's even more direct than Coach Prime saying, we've got a few positions taken care of already because I'm bringing my luggage and it's Louie. He's coming. Now, maybe hearing about the futility of life without God isn't necessarily a comforting message. Unless you've been pardoned. And then you live with the comfort of knowing that if the breath of God blows in your direction today, and your life on earth comes to an end, you will stand with him forever. Verse 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who's that remind you of? Jesus, right? This is a messianic prophecy about the good shepherd. When Herod inquired of the scribes at the time about who this child that had been born was, this is what they said to him in Matthew 2, verse 6. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. We heard in week one that Jesus is the light that shines in the darkness. We heard in week two of our series that he's the branch that comes out of the stump. And here we see he is the shepherd that comes to bring comfort to his people. Let us worship him this Christmas. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's why he came at Christmas, to lay his life down for you. And if you're wondering whether you're one of his sheep, Here's what he says in verse 16 of John 10. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Perhaps you're hearing the voice of Jesus today, speaking to you, calling to you to come to him and receive the eternal comfort that only he can offer. Be comforted this Christmas, my friends. Jesus, the good shepherd, has come to save. If you resonate with the paradox that we live in the most comfortable time in history and yet happiness is at an all-time low, I want you to see that Jesus is the answer.
If you wonder, why do I have all of these material possessions and comforts? I'm wealthy, I'm educated, I'm healthy, I have good relationships, and yet, oftentimes my life feels empty and without comfort. The Good Shepherd is calling to you today. He laid his life down for you. And he wants you to know that he will satisfy and comfort you like nothing else and no one else ever will. We live in the most comfortable time in history, and yet happiness is at an all-time low. Maybe, my friends, we find comfort in the wrong things. But let us be comforted this Christmas because God has pardoned us, and God has sent us his good shepherd. Isaiah 40 is filled with good news. 700 years before the birth of Jesus, Isaiah predicted that God would bring comfort to his people, true, lasting, eternal comfort to all people who would call on the name of Jesus for salvation. This is good news of comfort for each of us this Christmas. Barry Webb, an Old Testament scholar, says this about Isaiah 40. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the gospel of Isaiah transposed into a newer, higher key. Isaiah 40 is lyrical, it's poetic, but it's the good news about Jesus and the comfort he brings to his people. Maybe that's why Handel used language from Isaiah 40 so extensively in his work, The Messiah. In fact, the first part of The Messiah is known as the Christmas portion, and nearly every verse we've covered today is included. So as we close, we're going to listen to one of the movements from Handel's Messiah. It's taken from verse 4 of Isaiah 40. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. As we listen, let's consider whether we're ready for Christmas. Not logistically, not whether the shopping's done or all the invites are out, but whether we are ready spiritually to welcome the newborn king this Christmas. If you've never welcomed Christ as your Savior to be your king, I invite you in these moments to turn to him, to repent of a life lived without him, and receive the comfort that only Jesus can offer. Let's pray. Good Shepherd, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you came at Christmas to bring eternal comfort to a weary people. And that your mission didn't stop just as a baby. But that you lived your life calling to us, revealing to us who you are. And then you went to the cross on our behalf so that our iniquity might be pardoned so that our warfare might come to an end. And because of your gracious work, Lord Jesus, we have received double from the Lord's hand 
for each of our sins. May you be worshipped and glorified in our hearts this Christmas. We love you, Lord Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.